Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is bouncing off the walls. Alex, tell us if you've got so so excited i've got my london hat on today uh we're interviewing two people that do something that i've always 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 wanted to do we have two members of the society of thames mudlocks with us today we have jason sandy who's an architect and developer a hobbyist mudlarker uh, originally from the us but he's been living in london for nearly 15 years now and we have nick stevens a photographer who you may have seen on mud men with johnny vaughan on was it dave or was it on yesterday it was uk it was tv History Channel. Ah, okay. Right. You guys are mudlarks. Do you want to start by telling everybody what this is in case they think I've completely lost my mind? Uh, well, the, the River Thames, if, if you didn't know, is tidal. So that means twice a day, the water kind of disappears and leaves the muddy banks of the, the river exposed. Um, so basically what we do is we head down into that mud. And if you're lucky, you can find little bits of history in the mud which, uh, yeah, you can then research and discover fascinating stories. Um, it's just so exciting. You never know what you're going to find. Um, and that's it, basically. Oh, I've already begged you to take me with you. Mm-hmm. I just, it'd be brilliant. You have a new book out, you guys, uh, which is a compilation of things that many, many people have found mudlarking. And do you know, the, the mark of how good this book is, is that my mum is rubbish at picking up books and reading. She just watches the Food Channel on lockdown all day uh, and she stole this off me when the publisher sent it to me and I don't think she's given it back yet oh. she absolutely <laughs> loves it uh, so mudlarking has it been a thing throughout history because I'm guessing people could find useful things by doing this so in some semblance of its form have people been um, picking through the banks of the Thames all the way through history yeah, it dates back to the uh, the 19th century when uh, poor Victorian boys and children and even uh, older women, they would search the River Thames foreshore for anything that they could uh, find and immediately resell. So they were actually mudlarking to survive. So they were la- not looking for gold coins or silver artifacts. They were looking for coal, rope, uh, dropped tools, um, anything that they could immediately take up to a shop and resell and get a few pence to go buy a loaf of bread or other essentials for their families. So why is the Thames such a treasure trove? I mean, obviously, <clears throat> London has been London for a long, long time. Uh, London is, is where it is because of the River Thames, because of the location of the river and how it meanders its way out to sea. So, yeah, basically, ever since man lived by the river 
the stuff that he's owned, she, uh, has been dropped in the river. So, so, so as long as there's been, I mean, even before human habitation, if you, uh, in our book, we begin uh, with the, with prehistory. So we begin with fossils. Actually, that's my background is, is, uh, is fossil hunting as a kid. So um, you can literally start off prehistory and work your way through every possible conceivable date and event that happened in history and find potentially something from that date all the way up to modern day mobile phones you know that kind of shopping trolleys boris bikes all that stuff chucked in everything in between so we're going to talk about some of our we're going to talk about many things that you've discovered or other people have discovered as well but let's start with our favorites so jason what's your favorite find So I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at the Roman chapter within the book, but the full page image there at the front of the chapter uh, shows the Roman hairpin that I found a few years ago. And uh, it's a beautiful carved bone artifact from Roman periods. And the Museum of London was able to date it back to between 43 and 100 AD. So that's almost 2,000 years old. And if you look at the top of it, it's got a carved bust of a woman. And she has high false curls. And based on the hairstyle, uh, the museum was able to date it to the Flavian period uh, back in Roman times, which is quite extraordinary. And I found that just laying on the surface as I was mudlarking uh, in central London. That's amazing, just laying on the surface. Exactly. Because the, uh, the Thames Clippers, the boats, the ferry service goes down the river, uh, the, the surface is quite fast. And so they kick up a lot of waves and the waves break on the exposed foreshore and kind of carve away and scrape away the surface and just reveal these historical artifacts that were dropped uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. I think, do you know, we'll get to this when we pick, because Alina and I have picked our favourites that we found in there, but one thing that astounds me is the tiny, little, intricate things where the detail on them has survived in such pristine condition. Is that because of the mud? Yeah, so the, the Thames mud is, uh, is, is anaerobic, which means there's no oxygen in the mud. So you just don't get the deterioration to those artifacts. So, so it's kind of different to if you were a field metal detectorist, let's say the, the items exposed to oxygen, different sort of chemicals, let's say, in the, in the soil, whereas the Thames mud, it preserves it like a time capsule. So more often than not, as that stuff is getting washed out, you're, you're going to find it in the exact same condition as, as when it went in. I've got some Roman coins that I found many years ago. Unfortunately, the particular area is, is it's all changed now, but, but it was a particular area where we used to find Roman coins and they are, you know, you hold it in your hand and it, it's, it's like they were made yesterday, literally made yesterday because you're literally popping them out of a, of a yeah, we, we call it like a time capsule and, and yeah, preserved by the anaerobic mud, no oxygen. So there's no deterioration. And, and that's why they're in such good condition. A lot of the finds that we make. And Nick, what's your favourite? I mean, I'd say I have lots of favourite finds. Depends kind of what day of the week it is, I suppose. But but just skimming through the book very quickly, I mean, that image on page 62 of the skull is, you know, it's still up there with one of my most, I suppose, important finds. You know, I could talk forever and a day about it. It's just visually is, it has such an impact, but also the story behind it is, is such an interesting one. Um, yeah, that was just an ordinary afternoon out, you know, not expecting to see that whatsoever. And, and there it was. What you see is what I saw, basically, just staring up at me from the mud, you know, 
and a trillion thoughts went through my mind. What do you do? What is it? Oh my God. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years to, to finally get some information back to find out that it was a young girl. You know, I'd actually just had, uh, my daughter was born around the time that I found it. So that was kind of a little bit, whoa. Uh, it was a very young girl who died uh, of natural causes, but more likely kind of as in malnutrition, natural causes, um, um, rather than having been sort of brutally murdered, let's say. Uh, and she was buried. So somebody cared for her and, 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 and decided to lay her out and bury her out in, out in the mud. You know, why? Who knows? It could, could have been from a very poor background. So they maybe didn't couldn't afford to, to bury her in consecrated ground, let's say. Um, I did lots of research on that area and found that the land was used by cattle grazers, um, possibly a mill owner. You know, it could have been the daughter of a mill owner. Um, who knows? Um, well, after I found the skull, about a year later, I went back with um, an organization called Thames Discovery. And we, we found the rest of her body, unbelievably. So it's one of the best preserved um, human um, remains ever found from the Thames. We, we recovered about 98% of her body. Um, That's yeah, incredible. There's still potentially more to find out. We could find out um, using calcium deposits on the teeth. We could determine where she grew up. So we could find out whether maybe she was a Londoner or maybe, you know, whether she came from somewhere else before living in London. We just don't know. But um, yeah amazing amazing really <laughs> and just the image itself is a if uh, your readers uh, listeners rather get to see it it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a really arresting image yeah it is i'll tell you what i will tweet that one i'm sure the publisher won't mind if i take a snap yeah. of it and tweet it when we release this podcast because it's yeah, yeah. pretty stunning yeah. um alina we picked our favorites didn't we what did you go for I, <laughs> Alex started making fun of me for this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, she's clearly going to go for something colourful and shiny and something weird. And that's exactly what she did. <laughs> she did. Um, so of all the things you've got from like ancient history and beautiful jewellery and everything else, I went for probably for the most modern thing you probably found out there. And um, the message is in a bottle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think you saw the one that uh, Nicola included in the book, but Nicola White found this fascinating message in a bottle. She's actually found over a hundred um, in the river over the years. And this one contained a note from a little boy. And a lot of these bottles, uh, people write down their frustrations, their hopes, their dreams, their wishes, and chuck it into the river and uh, just hoping that something is returned. And Nicola found a bottle from, with a note from a boy asking for a Power Ranger suit. So I'm not sure if you have kids that watch the Power Rangers, but my, my son absolutely loved that. And it's always a kid's dream to have um, one of the, the costumes from the characters. And the boy asked for the red Power Ranger suit. And so Nicola was able to trace down uh, the boy. There was no address included on the note. Literally, he just wrote his name. So she posted the, an image of the note on Twitter. And within three hours, she had been able to track down the little boy. And so what she did as a surprise is purchased the Red Ranger Power, sorry, Power Ranger suit and sent it to him. And uh, that he, is amazing. I yeah. love this. So obviously he was uh, just so overjoyed by that and wrote back a nice letter to Nicola thanking her and included two photographs of him wearing the suit. And uh, this year, well, sorry, last year, I posted these images on Instagram 
And um, as all things on social media, they get kind of retweeted or yeah. forwarded into different people. So we actually got in contact with the actual Red Ranger, the Hollywood star, who contacted me and offered to uh, contact the boy directly. Which That's insane. So like, he threw his wish in the Thames and it came true. Exactly. If I throw my wish in the Thames, it might come true. <laughs> <laughs> what, I want a husband. Well, not necessarily a husband. No. <laughs> just at the moment, just anyone to talk to. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> in person, exactly. not being locked in my house. That is incredible. But you said she's found over 100 yes. messages in bottles. So how far back do they go? Um, I don't know that exactly, but uh, I know that some are decades old. That's mad. And Alina, you really liked the, uh, I guess they're Murano glass from Venice, aren't they? But these brilliantly coloured little glass beads as well. They had to go for something colourful. Mm. <laughs> Nick, do you want to talk about those? Yeah, I, it's funny, you know, d- different mudlarks, they have d- different things that they are good at finding. And I'm rubbish at finding these beads. I, I, I maybe have one or two that I've ever found, whereas flow just has this knack of being able to find these incredible colors and um sizes of these particular of these particular beads yeah and so there's obviously the the backstory that they were used as as slave beads maybe decorative yeah and the venice connection as well in italy so yeah they're fascinating little pieces but it just for me it just uh it kind of blows my mind that you know certain mudlarks have just got this affinity to finding certain things where others just don't it's 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 very funny so um yeah it's good you kind of get this on the battlefields with people walking the battlefields as well i just suck i can just about do a shrapnel ball because their little lead balls are slightly different color to the mud um but i'm rubbish at finding stuff and other people just sort of dive down to the ground and come up with with bits and pieces and buttons and stuff like that and it just never i just i'm rubbish I'm the worst battlefield hunter ever. There's other stuff that I've got that people go, oh my God, I'd love to find one of those. And I think, I've got like 20 of those. What, you've never found one before? And <laughs> What's your thing then? What's your thing? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Oh, I mean, for instance, I found my my fifth, um, so like a Georgian watchwinder key. So, we, you know, you'd find bits and pieces of these watchwinder keys. But, you know, if you're lucky, you might find a whole one, an intact one. I had yeah, there's, there's one on page 67. If you want to flick over to there, you can see one at the bottom right-hand corner. I think there was a fascinating, in, you even had, like, it's the oldest, like, pocket watch I've ever seen. Is that not dated to somewhere around the Great Fire of London as well? Yeah, 17th century. Mm. Yeah, that was an amazing one that was found by Andy Johansson. Um, it's a toy, so it doesn't function, but it, it had the same purpose. And a little child would have worn that to imitate his father and mother who had a pocket watch. He had so. the pocket watch. Yeah, and every watch would have needed a little key to wind it up. Yeah. So you often you'll, you'll find bits and pieces of those watch keys, but uh, I found my fifth complete one, literally. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's another, there's another complete one slinging in the bucket. But, but I took it out the other day just to clean it and look, have a look at it. And I'm like, geez it still works it still rotates on you know if that came out of a field it would just fall apart basically yeah thing still rotates in my fingers do um, you find specifically a lot of stuff to do with the great fire of london not really i mean mm. you, you know arguably some of the, the roof tiles 
um, were, you know, roof tiles that were, you know, chucked in when all the buildings kind of were pulled down or, or collapsed. A lot, a lot of the re- sort of the refuse was was thrown in because it, it needed to go somewhere. Mm. You know, you might find various burnt bits of of, of pottery, sometimes glass, things like that. It's do very. You, it's, do you want to do you want to tell them about the uh, trade token that you found that was actually from Pudding Lane? Yeah, but so can I, you tell us about those market tokens? Because they yeah. seem to come up a lot and I don't understand exactly what they are. Again, these are quite rare. They're very high up on our, on our, our wants list. Every time you go out, if you find a trader's token, you, you know, you've had a really, really good day. It was fr- from a time when there just wasn't enough small change. There wasn't enough. The government couldn't issue enough half pences and farthings. So, so market traders would make their own. Um, uh, so there was a little industry in, in, in die makers, possibly guys that may have once worked for the mint. So they had the tools to be able to create a die and a die is what you need to make essentially a coin. So these would be engraved with the, the owners, you know, their name, their initials, sometimes they're dated. Sometimes they have little pictorial images on of perhaps the trade um, and, and were issued to these traders. So they would use them. You'd come into, let's say the baker's shop. You want a loaf of bread there's no, you know, there's no farthing coinage to go around. So the, the baker will give you a farthing token from his business with his name on it, which you actually could redeem. It doesn't have to go back to the bakers. You could probably redeem it in the, in the local area because the baker will know the butcher. The butcher will know the, the, the vintner. The vintner will know the candle maker. So it's all trusted money, basically. But it's such a fascinating slice of history because of the information that we can get from them. So yeah, one particular day I found this token and as I'm giving it a clean, I'm thinking, geez, that didn't look like that says pudding, pudding lane. And it, and it did. And when I researched it, um, yeah, it's dated 1657. So yeah, nine years before the Great Fire. Um, and the, the Great Fire started in Pudding Lane, just to explain for those people yeah. in the audience that might not know that. Obviously the Great Fire started in, in, uh, in Pudding Lane. Uh, and this token is from Pudding Lane. So you can't really kind of get much closer to, to to having something in your hand that you know came from at least the area, albeit the date slightly earlier. But it would have survived the Great Fire and somehow ended up in the mud for me to find all those years later. So, yeah, that's a pretty direct connection, really. <laughs> that's yeah, brilliant. If you look on page 58, uh, you can see some of these tokens, the one that Nick was just explaining. And the one in the middle actually has the date 1666. And I've found one myself as well. And it's always exciting to find uh, a token with that exact date, that historic date in London's history. I'm astounded at the amount of pipes that, that are in this book. It's just incredible, the different types and broken, not broken whole ones. Yeah, again, it's that mud, you know, if it's if it got thrown in whole, you know, there's a really good chance if you happen to be there at the right time that you'll, you'll find it in that whole condition. I've probably got five or six complete pipes. Oh, I'm just kidding. You know, so sometimes I've seen them on the surface, you know, some some I've pulled out of the mud. Others are literally just sitting there. The, the water, as Jason explained earlier about the tide, the wash, you know, it, it can sometimes throw things up that are light that have been pulled maybe from from sort of further out into the river, just mm. get thrown up. Uh, that's not to say, you know, half an hour later, it might not get washed again and broken. So you've got to be lucky. But um, yeah, the amount of decorated pipes, I love decorated pipes. Uh, and again, a, a little bit like, you know, the snapshots in time, faces and, and designs and emblems, you know, all, all long lost, but but they're to be researched. 
That's mad. Because we've just done uh, this week, we did actually interview um, someone who works for the Portable Antiquities Scheme for the British Museum. So we talked about metal detecting and the Treasure Act and things. Is it a similar setup? So if you find something extremely valuable, are you expected to hand it over to a museum or is it a personal find or does it work a similar way to metal detecting? So to go mudlarking in London, you have to have a license from the Port of London Authority. Mm-hmm. And as part of that license, anything that's 300 years or older that you find on the foreshore must be reported to the Museum of London. Okay. And the, and the fines liaison officer then records that on the uh, Portable Antiquity Scheme database that's managed and run by the British Museum. Uh, but it's a great service for us because uh, not only does the museum identify the find, but they also post a record of it. So you can always refer back to that and know exactly what it is and from what time period that's from. So there's a lot of interesting things that come up, but we're una- not able to identify them. And some of these objects have actually rewritten history because uh, nothing like that has ever been found before. That's mad. We're going to get to some of those um, a bit later. But I dug out some of my favourites as well. Um, I don't think it's any secret that I'm absolutely obsessed with elephants. And there's a beautiful, beautiful elephant carving. Is it a hair comb again? It's Roman, I believe. Yeah, it's a hairpin. So that was found by Jason Davey. And uh, similar to the hairpin that I was explaining before, a lot of times uh, women in the Roman period, even like maybe yourselves or Japanese women today, you have your hair rolled up in a bun in the back and you fix it with a long pin. Mm. And so what Roman women would do is buy pins that have a very highly decorated head to them to kind of show their social status or their wealth, etc. So this is actually an interesting hairpin because it's actually carved from uh, elephant ivory. So it's come from Africa, and whether it was carved in Africa or carved in the UK, we don't know. But uh, it's extraordinary that this is uh, showing or depicting uh, an elephant, sorry, an African elephant, and it's actually made from a tusk back in the uh, first century AD. A Roman elephant made that. Obviously, we hate the ivory trade, but that is remarkable that that is actually sort of a bit of surviving elephant from the Roman era. Yeah. And uh, they even talk about, uh, I think it was during the Roman invasion uh, that Julius Caesar orchestrated uh, back in, I think, 50 BC. Uh, He was unsuccessful, but a lot of times they did bring elephants as part of their um, kind of military to both to intimidate and also uh, as they were crossing the Thames, the elephants could cross through the water, whereas uh, horses wouldn't be able to, to survive or they would be swept away. I'm just thinking about my elephant in Thailand that I go and look after. If you try, the only reason she ever looks menacing is if you're holding food and she wants it. <laughs> Having three ton of cats stampeding towards you because she sees she's got a pineapple with no comprehension that she will trample you to death is quite amusing. But, uh, <laughs> the thought of using her in war, she'd be like, "Screw this! This isn't fun. <laughs> I'm going to wander off and do my own thing." Um, I really miss her. Sorry, that's why I started waffling about her and I can't go to Thailand and it sucks. Another thing that really interested me is war medals. So I wondered, so there's a victory medal, isn't there, from World War One, And there's also in the book like an RFC sweetheart token. And I wonder if this is kind of like Muhammad Ali, you know, where he threw his Olympic medal in a river, didn't he? Because he didn't want it anymore. And it was like a symbolic gesture to say, screw this. Um, but you found also a Victoria Cross as well, but you don't know who it belonged to do you you mudlocks 
That's correct. It's been traced to two different soldiers that both, uh, we don't know the whereabouts of their medals. Uh, so that was found by Tobias Neto. And uh, it was on exhibition, sorry, it was on display in the Museum of London. And now he's donated it to the uh, National Army Museum uh, there in Chelsea. And it's on permanent display there. But there's a, a wonderful backstory about these two soldiers that that medal could be associated with. Uh, and I think the date on the back is 1856, and it was actually given uh, personally from Queen Victoria to whoever the recipient was of that medal. So that's one of the very first ones then, isn't it? Uh, yes, exactly. And the medal is actually made, it, made from a melted down cannon from that war. So it was the Crimean War, and uh, they used one of the actual Russian cannons uh, that was melted down to forge these individual medals. Do you know what, though, that apparently this is brilliant. There's something to do with where the cannon metal originally came for that basically means that the first VCs were made in China. <laughs> the origins of the medal i did read that the other day oh that's interesting but what about the victory medal because that's the one that everybody got yeah so that was um that was found by matthew virgo um and it has fa french and and then obviously his number um on the back of the medal um yeah so i think it belonged to a chap called francis arthur french mm. born in harpenden in hertfordshire and uh, yeah, fought in both world wars, which is incredible, and survived and lived, lived to tell the tale, lived until about 1958. Uh, evidently didn't want the medal. Didn't either. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Again, you know, with a lot, a lot of things that we find, you just, you kind of stand there thinking, well, why is this here? You know, casual mm. loss. Was it thrown away? You know, what was the, the intention behind that? So yeah, this particular find makes you think that. And I guess the VC medal as well just really makes you focus on that point. Why was it thrown in? Why was it thrown into the river, you know? Um, I think uh, Matthew contacted these, the relatives of, of this chap, um, offered to return the medal. Uh, yeah, mind-blowing, really. Can I tell you about the, the one that you also mentioned that's on page 82, the uh, Nathan Posner medal? Yes, that's the sweet, it's like a carved, it looks like a sweetheart token, is it, that someone's given? Yeah, it's, it's actually something even more special. So uh, you can see on the right-hand side, it's a French coin mm. that was actually uh, rubbed down or smoothed down on the reverse and then hand-carved RFC. Uh, and that's the predecessor to the RAF, so the Royal Air Force. And it's dated, uh, sorry, I don't think that's a, the date. It's uh, from the First World War. Mm. Um, it's got another number that was his uh, military number. Uh, but this was found by our friend Simon Bourne, and it's a, a handmade military dog tag, and it says Nathan Posner on it, and then it says Jew. And because it's from the RAF or the RFC, uh, we thought that he was a pilot, but um, uh, Simon was able to track down and find out more about this guy, and he was actually a tailor. So he used to make seat, uh, suits in Savile Row. So he was a suit maker, but was drafted into the military to, if you remember, planes at that time period, uh, the wings were made of fabric. 
So he was a seamstress and he would make the, the airplane wings or the fabric that would be stretched over the, uh, the timber or the metal structure of the airplane wings. So it's quite fascinating. And Simon put an article out in the local newspaper and somebody contacted him and he was able to return the medal to the grandson of the soldier who had dropped this into the Thames. So it gives you kind of that spine tingling uh, moment where something lost in the Thames uh, almost a hundred years ago is now been returned to the family of, of the, uh, the person that dropped that originally. It's amazing. Do you know what I love about you guys is that it's not about the money. I mean, a VC is worth a fortune and the guy's just given it to a museum and you found something that special and you've returned it to the family. It really isn't about making a profit out of these finds, is it? It's not. Absolutely. If you tried to do that, you'd fail miserably. If if that was your intention to go mudlarking to earn a living out of it, it just doesn't work, basically. So, yeah, the the drive has got to be the, the love of history to begin with, I think. And then if you're lucky, you might find something that might potentially have some value, but that's, that's unlikely the reason why you're doing it. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. And the other thing I flagged was just cufflinks, again, because of just these tiny little details, um, these little seashell cufflinks. And I think they're Georgian, it says in the book. That's right. Yeah. So sort of 18th century, but sort of very feminine, really, in their appearance. Mm. Obviously, you know, uh, you know, was including paintings of Venus. Um, it was also used um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a symbol of, of pilgrims, pilgrimage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in my research, uh, uh, scallop sort of include, I think, on Lady Diana's crest. So, yeah, the scallop is, is very symbolic, um, has a very sort of symbolic use. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, Georgian gentlemen were always quite flamboyant, really. So, so that kind of suits, it suits the style that particular set of cufflinks but cufflinks in general yeah i mean they're, they're reasonably common finds and again because of the anaerobic mud that's why often they just look in such great condition and you can see so much detail on them quite often i want to know what's the oldest thing you guys have found um i mean man-made would be would be my personally would be my mesolithic flint hand axe um non-man-made obviously fossils um could go back as far as you like but uh yeah the hand axe is about eight eight and a half thousand years bc that's how old that is you know it's well almost eleven thousand years old and you you know you you think of london back then you know it was literally a couple of settlements uh, early mesolithic man you know and you think, well, no cyclists no cyclists <laughs> <laughs> no congestion charge <laughs> on the tube none of that you just get, get in your little boat or wander wherever but but yeah it makes you think that's that's an early Londoner oh but, the Thames would have been three times as wide at that point yeah, as well wouldn't it absolutely because yeah. mm. I think the Thames only it's only in the 1870s with the embankment coming in that it's yeah. sort of the width that is now it's originally double that width isn't it that's absolutely correct yeah 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 and again it's you know things like this we know that tools were deposited for, for votive reasons as well as perhaps it got lost mm. it might have dropped it or there might have been a bit of a ceremony you know surrounding the, the the deposition of that particular hand axe in the river you know wishing for good crop better weather you know kids long life whatever you just don't know you know so for when i saw that and for that little moment i'm just sat on the foreshore all on my own with that thing in my hand and literally you try and rewind your brain to to sort of think the last human being to have that in their hand just blows your mind <laughs> well jason yeah. what about your oldest find 
Uh, again, as Nick said, it's, it's more flint tools and, and fossils. Um, I live in an area of West London where there are a lot of uh, settlements uh, that date back uh, to the BC times. And uh, we find a lot of uh, flint tools in this area. And just to hold something like that and know the last person that touched that uh, lived back in like 2000, 3000 BC. It's just an incredible feeling to have that tangible connection with history. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's incredible. What's the first item each of you ever found? Because I'm guessing like the first item holds a special place in your heart, even if it seems a bit naff now. I can remember the first Roman coin that I found. I, c- I couldn't tell you who the emperor was on it, but I, I, c- I can picture it in my mind. I remember where I was. I remember who I was with. It was, it was something that I had never found. I did a, bit of, a little bit of field detecting when I was a kid. Never found anything, you know, connected with the Roman coin. So when I first discovered mudlarking, that was one of the things that was really high on my, my finds list, my wants list. And it was about six months in before... There it was. I found it and I picked it up and I'll never forget that moment. You know, it was something that I'd worked, I'd aspired to find and having found one and it was in such good condition as well. I just, speechless. It just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Jumping for joy, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> How about Jason? you, Jason? Yeah, so um, I was, uh, I discovered mudlarking back in 2012, and that was in April. And in May, I got very excited because I heard that uh, they were having a special event at the Tower of London. So they used to open the foreshore uh, once a year, and anyone could go down, and they had um, archaeologists um, identifying finds. Uh, Nick was there uh, with his uh, Thames and Field Club, and would kind of display some of the amazing things found in the Thames. So I was just one month into mudlarking and had no clue even what I was looking for. So I found about maybe 50 modern coins, found broken bits of pottery, and I just had like a Tusco bag that I was chucking all of this stuff into. And I found this piece of uh, rusty metalwork and I just chucked it into the bag and didn't even think twice about it. Uh, then after we finished, uh, I kind of showed the, the field officer, the, the archaeologist, uh, my bag of rubbish. And uh, I was just picking out nice bits of colorful pottery. And she was like, oh, this is just 19th century, 19th century. So I didn't even bother showing her this rusty bit of metalwork that I found because I thought it was nothing. I thought it was just a little bit of a fence post or something. So then I showed another mudlark um, days afterwards. And they're like, oh, my goodness, that's something very special. And I was like, really? It's just a piece of rusting ironwork. 
And I said, no, that's a medieval arrowhead from the Tower of London. I was like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. So that was my first ever find that was of any historical value. And that was recorded on the portable antiquity scheme as my first ever find. That's incredible. Yeah, but it was probably shot or shot at or shot from the Tower of London. uh, And they dated it to the 14th and 15th century. So what's the weirdest or most disgusting one that you've ever found? Uh, that's, I mean, I suppose, for, I mean, I, I've already talked about the skull. I suppose mm. that the most grisly and gruesome, uh, personally in the, in the book, um, if you've got the, if you've got can skim to page 64, um, is the ball and chain found by Steve Brooker and Rick Jones. So that is your, your prisoner's ball and chain that would have been shackled to a prisoner's leg so that he couldn't escape. What's really, really gruesome about this in particular is the fact that it's locked. So it begs the question, was it locked onto someone's leg? And now, you know, it wasn't, let's say it wasn't found attached to a, you know, anything. So so did the guy somehow remove it? (laughs) I don't know. Or was he dropped off a boat wearing it? Yeah. Was he dropped off wearing it? And now he's, he's, you know, sort of, um, eroded away but uh but at the time i think the story goes that th- these two guys spotted what looked like a cannonball from a bridge sort of <laughs> out the mud so that when they climbed down to go and have a closer look and sort of pulled this cannonball out it was attached to a chain and then along with it came came the the um the lock yeah so i mean there's that ghost story from woolwich arsenal so i think it's napoleonic prisoners of war french prisoners of war on two um like prisoner hulks on the thames at woolwich and uh someone they were getting way too overcrowded and the conditions were disgusting this is all like this is a ghost story i've researched it to see if it's factually accurate or not and uh someone told the officer to um sort out his overcrowding problem and get his shit together um they just chucked a load of them overboard. And about they all haunt the shore there and they found bits of French stuff washing up on that part of the shore and that. But he literally took it lit- he took it really literally and just punted a load of them overboard. Wow. So yeah, apparently it did happen. Wow. Yeah, wow. having handled this this find as well, I've 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 been very lucky enough to to be in the same room as it. And it is it's one of those things, you know, rarely do I kind of get sort of chill you know chills going through your your body your bones but this is one of those things you just hold it and you're like whoa Mm. there's you know you know there's some weird thing attached to this there really is uh yeah very spooky (laughs) jason what about you uh so mudlarking normally involves uh waking up very early in the morning sometimes Mm. i leave the house before it's even light especially in the winter months and we're down there with our head torches, et cetera. And I was down on the foreshore uh, very early one morning and uh, stumbled across, uh, unfortunately, uh, a dead body. Uh, oh, no. He's down in the mud, uh, still had his trainer's shirt, jumper, hoodie, um, everything still on, just face down. So uh, another mudlark called the police and they had to come retrieve the body. And unfortunately, this isn't uh, an uncommon experience. Uh, well, there's that thing, there's a, like a dead man's wash up under the Tower Bridge, isn't there? Which for some reason about tides and banks and stuff, um, that's where, God help him. Do you remember the 
brutalized torso of that little boy they thought it was like some kind oh, of yeah. sackfish that's yeah. where that washed up and that is a that's a sticking point for bodies washing up but yeah. i guess yeah that's always not a risk but yeah it's not it's not so weird is it yeah unfortunately uh there was one area of the foreshore that was co- uh, cordoned off for several weeks um, where if you remember a few years ago, uh, a policeman was chopped up and thrown into the mm-hmm. town and his parts were washing up in one particular area. So that was kind of a no-go zone for us mudlarks as the police were doing their investigation. Um, uh, we often find, well, not often, but the, the bodies that I've seen have been washing up in Wapping, uh, which is a bit eerie because it's right there at Execution Dock where that used to be located. Um, where they used to execute pirates for over 400 years. And that's for some reason where, where I've seen a few bodies wash up, uh, which is very unfortunate. That probably qualifies for the next one, which is most surprising um, in an awful way. But what's, what's an item that you've both found where you're just stunned it ended up in the Thames? I think for me, Personally, a, a great example of that um, is the meg- megalodon tooth that I found. It's right at the very beginning of the book in, in the fossil sections. But as a very keen fossil hunter from a very early age, I, I know you know quite a fair bit about fossils. When I saw that, I thought, okay, I know what that is, but there's no, there's no way that this belongs where it is i found it on top of a barge bed so a barge bed is is a is a, is a flattened area of foreshore built during the victorian period for the boats so when the tide goes out the boat would sit on a flat surface rather than on the sloping foreshore doing my research i found actually that megalodons used to swim around around britain all those millions of years ago so um yeah that's it, it, brilliant yeah but, but again it was just one of those things that for, for quite a while i was convinced so this was my beetle moment you know somebody was trying to trick me because they knew i loved fossils and <laughs> I mean, it fits in the palm of my hand this thing is absolutely massive um and where it was like i said on top of this barge bed it didn't belong there whatsoever in a very industrial area of london as well nothing to do with where i found fossils previously so um yeah great jason yeah, so if you flip to page 44 at the top left-hand corner, you'll see uh, one of my most intriguing finds that had me scratching my head for, for a few days. Um, originally when I found this, so just to explain for those who, who can't see this, um, it is a, a piece of metal that ha- is almost like in a domed shape, and it has a pyramidal point on the top of it, and it's, um, it's, it's quite small. Uh, but it had me baffled. I thought it was, um, uh, what do you call those, uh, spur, like what you put on the back of your boot to prod the horse along. I thought it could have been attached to the back of someone's boot and it had fallen off. But uh, I posted this on uh, social media and a specialist identified it for me as a medieval knight's knuckle guard. So it's called a gadling. And this would have been attached to their gauntlet. So the, the, the glove, that uh, the kind of protective armory that protected their hand in battle. And it's been dated to the 14th century. And because it's made out of uh, brass, it means that it's a very high quality metal that uh, only a wealthy knight could have afforded 
back then in the 14th century. And I found a similar parallel, and that is uh, there's an effigy of the Black Prince, who's the son of Edward III, and that's in Canterbury Cathedral. So I actually took this to Canterbury Cathedral to kind of compare the two, and it's an almost identical match to the son of the king um, who wore this gauntlet back in the 14th century. Wow, so that must have belonged to someone pretty special. Yeah, yeah. and it fits perfect, perfectly on my own knuckle. Uh, so it's an original kind of knuckle duster from medieval times. There's got to be something that you found that has been incredibly historically important. So just in terms of uh, mudlarking finds in general, one of the most intriguing things that's uh, actually changed the way that uh, historians have perceived history is the amount of toys that we find in the Thames. And uh, there's been a whole book written about uh, the different uh, toys from medieval times from the 12th century, ranging all the way up to the 18th century, um, which have changed the the historical perceptions. Because originally, uh, they thought that children in medieval times were pretty much raised to be servants and to be the workforce. And they didn't think they had time to play or that parents would kind of bestow gifts Uh, upon them or give them things. But because so many toys have been found from the medieval and post-medieval time periods, they can see that there was a thriving toy industry in London and that kids really did have um, childhoods similar to what we have today uh, in terms of they were allowed to play. They had very interesting things. So as we mentioned previously, uh, toy pocket watches, uh, little toy plates, I found even a a dripping pan. So when you're doing a roast, you put a pan underneath the roast in order to catch the the juice that's flowing from that. And I have a toy dripping pan from from the 17th century to all of these like small pots and pans, uh, even skillets that have like little fish inside them. So very ornately detailed toys. And the Museum of London has collected Uh, all of these. And one mudlark called uh, Tony Pilsen um, donated his entire collection of thousands and thousands of toys to the museum. And the Museum of London has one of the largest collections of medieval and post-medieval toys in the world. And most of these toys, they wouldn't have survived in fields. So metal detectorists don't really find these too often because they disintegrate. But because of the Thames mud, it encapsulated them and preserved them. They're now in pristine condition. And that's why it's one of the most incredible assemblages of finds ever discovered in the River Thames. That's brilliant. Incredible as well to think that he's found thousands. Yeah, I I believe that was... um what he used to do was to swap things that he was interested in with other mudlarks. Mm. They would find, you know, so, so those guys that weren't that bothered with the toys, he would sort of, you know, try and tantalize them with something else that they might want in order to build up that collection. That's incredible. A a lovely guy and just, yeah, donated the whole lot. Amazing. Guys, you've mentioned a couple of uh, times, like a wish list or a finds like, that you'd love to have? What have you not yet found that you would absolutely love to stumble across on the banks of the Thames? Me and Jason had this conversation the last time we met. He'd, uh, he'd found uh, what's called a pilgrim's badge. So these are very old medieval yeah, badges that pilgrims would have bought on their pilgrimage to sort of display and show off that, what they had done basically to others as a souvenir 
he'd found one a couple of weeks beforehand and I mentioned to him do you know what I've never found one he's like really I've got like I can't remember how many you said you have Jason but that was one of those moments which is like I've explained before where you know some people are good at finding certain things and yeah so the entire my entire mudlarking time I've wanted to find a pilgrim's badge and have never found one Uh, so so if you ask me that question that is the, the one item that I've yet to find and still hope to one day Jason yeah, as a kid, I uh, took Latin in high school and I absolutely hated it, but uh, I do love the Roman period. And I have uh, quite a few Roman coins now and other artifacts from that time period. But what I don't have is a brooch, uh, specifically a dolphin brooch. I just love the shape of them and would absolutely love to find a, a Roman dolphin brooch, which have been found by other mudlarks. Even last year, one was found by um, a woman named Hazel. Guys, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about mudlarking. Um, I know Alex is bouncing off the walls and she desperately wants to go. I, on the other hand, will take a seat back and uh, watch what you guys bring back to shore. So that would be perfect for me. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having us. And just tell everybody again the title of the book and where they can get hold of a copy. Uh, So it's called Thames Mudlarking, Searching for London's Lost Treasures by Jason Sandy and Nick Stevens. Um, it's currently available um, of particular is on, on Amazon. You can pre-order it at the moment. It's uh, and it, I think it ships on the 18th of February. Is that correct, Jason? Yeah, that's correct. And most online bookstores have it. So instance, so for instance, uh, Book Depository, uh, Foils, Waterstones, W. H. Smith. If you're in the states, Barnes and Nobles has it. So pretty much all online bookstores carry it. And, uh, Guys, thank you so much. That's brilliant. You're welcome. Join us tomorrow when Heather Thornton will be with us to talk all about the Restoration Church and Skullduggery and Barbara Villiers and just utter mayhem on the return of the monarchy. So don't miss out on that one. And then join us down the pub in the evening because we will be looking for history as, I think it's history's luckiest person. So don't miss out on that one. It should be really interesting. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.